idea of this series is what does it mean, kind of asking the question, what does it mean to be open to the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit in every part of life, to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, to evidence the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, to know the person of the Holy Spirit, and that he would bring uh, life and freshness and vitality and intimacy with the Christ and energy into our lives, uh, that the Holy Spirit would, would lead us. And we've been looking over the last couple of weeks at the, at the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit himself is a gift to us, a gift from the Son and the Father who send the Spirit to us so God can be with us and in us. But then the Holy Spirit also gives us gifts, gives us special abilities, uh, supernatural power to do God's work. Not gifts for ourselves, but gifts to be spent and used and deployed to build up the body of Christ, to build up the church. They're a gift given to you for others and to give God glory. We're making our way through the list of gifts, and we've been saying that uh, you know some of the gifts are kind of uh, more spectacular than others. You know, miracles and uh, healing and prophecy—they're kind of a bit more spectacular than the gifts like service and mercy and administration. The gift no one prays for. Lord, please give me the gift of administration. Um, but all the gifts actually are spectacular because they all come from the Holy Spirit. All of them are supernatural in nature. And I'll be trying to encourage you to, uh, to know your gifts, to discover them, to develop them, and then to use them, to deploy them for the sake of the kingdom. And last week we said that, you know, you've kind of got to work out where you fit. Like, what's your best contribution? In order to discover that, you need to find your shape. Uh, I've adjusted it to be shape O, uh, S-H-A-P-E-O, spiritual gifts, heart, like your passion, um, your natural abilities or talents or skills you've acquired, that's A. Uh, P is personality. Uh, so, for example, there's a whole bunch of typos in this booklet because I'm a big picture person, not an attention to detail person. That's part of my personality. And God uses me to do big picture stuff, not to do detail stuff. So don't ask me to proofread your assignment. You will fail. I guarantee, guarantee. Uh, and then your experience, what's happened in your life that has shaped you and how can you minister out of out of that, both the highs and the lows, because of course God redeems and restores and uses all things. Remember the end of Genesis where Joshua, not Joshua, Joseph's gathered with his brothers and he says, you meant this for evil, but God used it for good. And that's how our experiences are shaped and used and redeemed to bless other people. And of course, O is opportunities, the unique circumstances you're facing. So last week we dove into the list, we made it through five or six spiritual gifts on the list. We looked at a message of knowledge, information given from God to build up the church, message of wisdom, knowing what you should do next and where God is working. We looked at faith and miracles and healing. And we want to pick up today looking at prophecy. Now, prophecy is one of the more controversial of the spiritual gifts. You know, does prophecy exist in today's church or not? Is it available? Is it still valid? Has that come and gone? Once we have the written word of God, the Bible, do we not need prophecy anymore? How does it work? And how is prophecy different from other spiritual gifts, like a message of knowledge? Well, prophecy is the very words of God. It's listed in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 as a spiritual gift, a gift God gives to the church to build up the church. So when you uh, prophesy, you speak the very words of God. 
You know, a message of uh, knowledge is sort of an impression, it's a feeling, it's a prompting, it's more kind of vague, it's our words, whereas prophecy is the very words of God. It's God speaking first person. Uh, God says to Jeremiah, I will put my words in your mouth and you will prophesy. Jeremiah is the mouthpiece. It's God's words spoken through Jeremiah and prophecy is God's words spoken through the prophets, the very words of God, thus saith the Lord, you know, inverted commas, as if God was speaking in, uh, in first person. Now, the Bible is the timeless word of God, but prophecy is a timely and specific word of God. It's God's word for here and now, for this situation, for this specific set of circumstances. And prophecy always fits with the written word of God. They're always congruent because God is is uh, faithful, God is uh, righteous, God is integrated, he's consistent, he has integrity. So the written word of God and the spoken word of God through prophecy have to line up. And all spiritual gifts sit under the authority of the local church leadership. So if, if someone stood up right now and said, oh, I've got a prophecy, pass me the microphone. Well, what do we do with that? Well, it's got to fit with the word of God it's got to be discerned by the Spirit of God, and it's got to uh, sit under the existing sort of church leadership. So I'd say, great, uh, just pop outside. Uh, you go out with Dave and some of the other pastors, maybe some church council members. You'll share your prophecy with them. They'll have their Bibles open. And uh, they'll make sure that what you shared lines up with the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit speaking through you resonates with the Holy Spirit in them. And if they get that sense, you know what, this is from God. This is a timely and specific word for us here and now. We've tested it uh, in light of Scripture, in light of the leadership of the church, and we've discerned this is the Spirit of God speaking. Then they might invite you back. I would hand over the microphone and you would share your prophecy with the church. But having the gift of prophecy is not the license to go rogue because all the gifts, all the gifts are... Um, they're all kind, they're all steady, they're all organized, they're all polite. You know, they all kind of work together uh, in a, um, yeah, kind of an organized way. We see uh, prophecy in the scripture too as uh, foretelling, you know, telling the future. So in Acts, I think it's Acts, uh, Acts 11, you know, um, Agabus the prophet speaks about an upcoming uh, famine telling the future, but a lot of prophecy in Scripture is not forth-telling, uh, it's, sorry, not foretelling, it's forth-telling, it's encouraging, it's warning, it's rebuking, it's supporting, it's confirming, it's um, uh, yeah, informing, correcting, strengthening, rebuking, all prophecy is God speaking a timely word to build up the church. On uh, Monday, no, on Sunday, uh, had some challenges at home with my 13-year-old son, and I gave him a pep talk. We sat down and I spoke about what it means to be a young man and to grow up and to have integrity and all that sort of stuff, just like the standard dad pep talk. And I thought, well, what I'm doing is it's kind of, I'm encouraging and rebuking and strengthening and supporting and guiding. That's kind of what prophecy does in the life of the church. It's God's specific and timely word uh, to build up the church. Uh, prophecy is less important now uh, than it used to be in the first century because we have the scriptures. You see, in, in the uh, 
if, if we were like the church in Corinth or Colossae or Philippi or something, we'd gather together and you would ask, uh, is there any word from the Lord? Has Paul written a letter to us that we can read out? Is Paul here with us visiting? You know, Paul the Apostle or maybe John or Peter, one of the other apostles. Or is there a local prophet who can speak the very words of God for us? Because before we had the New Testament, the two ways you got the word of God was through the ministry of an apostle or a local prophet. So prophecy is vital to be able to you know, know the word of God. But now that we have the scripture, prophecy is still important, but it's less important because God speaks all the time and the prophets minister all the time through the written word of God. Like today at Brackenridge Baptist Church, the Apostle Paul is ministering through his writings in 1 Corinthians and Romans. Um, uh, Luke's ministering through the book of Acts to us. So the, the apostles still minister. The prophets uh, are still important, but not as important as they were before. And prophecy uh, is different to um, the kind of uh, Greco-Roman mystery cult idea of prophecy, which is, remember, ecstasy and trance, where you kind of have an out-of-body experience and you say things you don't know and you're not in control anymore. New Testament prophecy is not like that. New Testament prophecy, the prophet is aware of what's happening, they're in control, they decide to open or close their mouth, and God speaks through them. So it's, it's non-ecstatic, it's, it's um, ordered and in line with the faculties God has given each person. So prophecy, the very word of God given to build up the church, uh, needs to be tested, needs to be examined. And just as there are false teachers that lead people astray through um, false doctrines and false teaching, there are false prophets who lead people astray through pretending to have the word of God where they don't, which is why we need discernment to make sure we actually understand uh, each, uh, whether the Holy Spirit is at work here. Which brings us to gift number seven, the gift of discernment. So discernment is supernatural insight to distinguish between the spirits, to know what power is at work in a particular situation. Something's happening, there's a situation, an event, a person, and someone with a gift of discernment can distinguish between, is this the Holy Spirit at work? Is the power behind this person or this situation or this event the Holy Spirit? Is it of God? Or is it just the human spirit? It's just people. It's just secularism, you know? Or is it the third option? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not just us. It's actually the work of the devil. It's an evil spirit behind the situation. And somebody with the gift of discernment is able to cut through and say, this is the force behind this situation or this is true and this is lie or this is accurate and that's not accurate or this is hidden and this is yet to be revealed they're able to distinguish uh, in any particular situation what's at play what realm is at play which spirit good versus evil right versus wrong maybe you've got the gift of discernment and and when you see somebody or hear something or witness a situation, something in you that you can't quite describe goes, oh, this isn't right. There's something evil about this. There's an evil spirit at play here. Or, guys, it's, there's not a devil in, you know, in every corner. This is just people being people. People are selfish and ambitious and they like to build big towers and make money and exercise power. This is just the human spirit at play. If you've got the gift of discernment, you can feel a situation 
and sense what's happening and understand where's this person coming from. Um, quite often when you're a pastor, people just walk in off the street. And I remember this one guy came to visit me one time and he was acting quite erratic. And I'm praying, saying, Lord, show me. Is this guy on drugs? You know, is he just tripping? Is, is this guy... Um, having a mental episode you know is he schizophrenic or bipolar or having a psychotic episode is he unwell or is this person demonized in some way and the power behind him explaining his erratic behavior and his words is actually uh you know satanic that's that's a discernment question what's at play here and if you've got the gift of discernment you find it very easy god uses you uh to identify those things it's great for church leadership teams to have somebody with the gift of discernment on the team. When you discover who that person is, you can say to them, hey, how do you feel about this? What's your spirit telling you? What are you sensing behind this? Are you okay with this? What do you think's happening? And they can be very, very, very fruitful to build up the church in that way. Okay, uh, number eight, speaking in tongues. Now, this is probably, out of all of the gifts, probably the most controversial and I think the area where there is the greatest misunderstanding and the greatest anxiety and the greatest uh, fear, and I think it's just a mess. So I would love over the next few minutes just to unstitch that for you and to put it back together so you go, oh, well, that makes sense. I understand that. So speaking in different kinds of tongues, the first big idea is that there are two different types of tongues described in the New Testament. Two different types of tongues, and they work quite differently. So the first kind we have in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, again in Acts chapter 8, and again in Acts chapter 10, we have uh, speaking in tongues. So when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all of the uh, God-fearing uh, God fearers, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, are gathered together in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you. They're praying, they're worshipping, and the Holy Spirit descends like tongues of fire. It flutters down like a, like a dove. And they begin to speak different human languages. Okay? They spill out onto the streets, and there's people gathered from all over the kind of Mediterranean world, North Africa, right through modern-day Turkey, up through Europe. And each person hears their own mother tongue their native language, someone speaking in their native language. And they're like, dude, I thought I was the only person that spoke Swahili. But here you are praising God and you know, um, preaching Christ in Swahili. What is going on? And someone else is like, are you kidding me, man? I'm a Cypriot and they're speaking my language. And someone else is like, I'm from, you know, all over the world, real human languages. Each person heard their own language. And that was a sign that the Spirit of God had come. It was a sign that authenticated the message. It was a sign that showed everyone present that something was happening here that was supernatural. Real human languages to um, show everyone that Christ was King. It's part of the inauguration of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit comes on the Jews in Acts chapter 2, they speak in tongues to show that the Spirit is broken in. When the Holy Spirit comes on the, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 8 and on Cornelius' family, the, sorry, the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, each time the Holy Spirit breaks into a new people group, there's evidence of, by speaking in tongues. Only three kinds of people in those days. You're either Jewish, 
a bit Jewish, a Samaritan, or you're a non-Jew. And the Holy Spirit breaks in on the Jews. And everyone's like, yeah, we expected that. We're God's special people. We've got Joel chapter 2 that explains the Spirit's going to be poured out on all people. Then on the Samaritans, and they're like, whoa, that's man. I was not expecting that. The hated half-Jews, the sellouts, the misfits. But not only that. But the Holy Spirit is poured out on absolute outsiders, non-Jews, Gentiles. They receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. So each time a new people is inaugurated with the Holy Spirit, there's evidence of speaking in tongues, real human languages that show that the Spirit of God is there. But then in um, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 30, Paul says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no. And then he talks about tongues being the language of angels. And he, he says, I would rather you prophesy than speak in tongues. Because when you speak in tongues, no one knows what you're saying. It's kind of weird for everybody. Because they're like, do you know what he's saying? Do you know what he's saying? Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Do you understand? So Paul says it's unintelligible in Corinthians. It's the uh, language of angels. It's... Um, building themselves up, speaking to God directly. And he says not all speak in tongues. So the Acts tongues are part of the inauguration of the Holy Spirit breaking in to the three people groups, a sign that the gospel is true, that Jesus is there, the Spirit's come. The tongues in Corinthians are different. They're a private prayer language. They're a way to pray without the barrier of words. Maybe a good analogy is music. You know how you can put music on, classical music, instrumental music, and it can make you feel things that words can't express? You know? Maybe it's Howard Shaw, uh, you know, the composer. Or, um, you know, you, you hear this music and it expresses your emotions and your thoughts and the unintelligible things in a way that words never can. And then someone goes and wrecks it by trying to write lyrics for the song. And you're like, you've just wrecked it. There is a way that music transcends language. And um, speaking in tongues is similar. It's, it's when you pray without the, oh, I don't know, how do you, what do you say, Lord, which word do I choose? How do I get this out? It just bypasses that. And it's heart to heart. It's you praying directly to God via the Holy Spirit, expressing things that words Word limit. It's private prayer language. And the way tongues works is that it builds up the church by building up the, the tongue speaker. So tongues, private prayer language. Uh, Paul says, um, I'd rather you didn't kind of pray in public in tongues because no one knows what's going on. It's weird unless there's someone there to interpret, in which case we can kind of make sense of things. But tongues is a private prayer language. It's heart to heart with God. Uh, it's confusing for unbelievers. It's unhelpful for other believers. Um, so it should be done privately or quietly if done in public. Um, I can't speak in tongues. I, I pray about it sometimes. Uh, God hasn't given me that gift yet. Maybe he will. I hope he does. Uh, I don't have that gift. I remember one time I was speaking at this uh, kind of youth, young adults camp in Victoria. And I was just um, you know, praying and looking at my talks and stuff. And this lady came in and said, can I pray with you? I said, yeah, sure. She said, you know, Mark, um, Pastor Mark, do you have the gift of tongues? I said, no, I don't. She said, well, can I pray for that gift for you? And I said, sure, absolutely. If God wants to give it to me, I'd love to receive it. 
and I'm, I'm open. I'm not a skeptic. I'm genuinely open. And she starts praying for me, and she prays, and she prays, and she prays, and she prays, and she's got a hand on my head, and she's pushing harder and harder and harder and harder and getting more and more fervent. And after a while, I said, look, I really love your heart to pray for me, but I actually don't think that's what God's doing right now. I hope he does one day. I pray for that gift. I'd love to have it. But I have other gifts that I need to discover, develop, and deploy. And after a while, she stopped praying for me to receive that gift. Um, yeah, I hope I do. I hope I do. Now, the, the problem with tongues, what makes tongues so controversial, is that some people would say, well, if you can't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. The way you know you have the Holy Spirit is you can speak in tongues. So no tongues, no spirit. That's misunderstanding of the role of the tongues in Acts, which are signs that the Spirit has come, breaking in in human history, and the tongues in Corinthians, which is a gift that God gives some people in order to pray without the constraints of language. So if, if you can't speak in tongues, um, you can still have the Holy Spirit. You have other gifts you can use if you've received Christ and received the Spirit through faith and repentance. Don't mix those things up because they work differently. Paul describes tongues as an angelic prayer language. If you have that gift, I encourage you to use it. Uh, be sensitive to others as you use it. remember one time I was talking to a leader in my church, and a uh, small group leader, and he said, at our small group, everyone can pray in tongues. So when we pray at the end of our time together, you know, everyone just prays in tongues. It doesn't matter. No, no one feels weird about it because everyone's an insider. Everyone can do it. But if we have a visitor who can't pray in tongues, we just be kind to them and we just pray like in English because then it's not weird for them. I'm like, that's a sensitive and considerate uh, way to use your gift to build up the church. Number nine, interpretation of tongues. Again, Paul puts this straight after um, the gift of tongues that some have in 1 Corinthians 12, interpretation of tongues. I kind of see this gift as, it's a, it goes with, a, with tongues as a package but this is kind of a concession gift, I think. It's a, it's a gift that if someone speaks in tongues out loud at a gathering and everyone else is like, I don't know what that means. Does that help you? It didn't help me. The interpretation is someone who can say, hey, um, let me explain that for you. Let me translate that for you. Let me interpret that for you so that everyone can be edified rather than confused. So they go together uh, as a pair and it just helps making, make sure that everyone knows what's going on. Tidies things up. Okay, uh, apostolic gifting. Apostolic gifting. The original apostles were people who had been with Jesus, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and had been personally commissioned, uh, sent with authority to take the kingdom of God forward. That means when the apostle John died in his late 90s, around 100 AD, something like that, that was the point where the last apostle died because he was with Jesus, personally commissioned by Jesus, an eyewitness to the resurrection. So there are no more big A apostles, if you like. An apostle means sent with authority. And the original apostles were sent with authority to plant churches, to make disciples, to see the kingdom of God expand right around the globe. But when they died, uh, that was the end of that big A apostolic ministry. Now, Ephesians 2.20 says that the, um, the way the church started is Christ is the cornerstone. 
Think about a building. If you build a building out of stones, the first thing you do is you put a big block that is the right height in the right location, that is a nice square block that is very, very heavy, like 20 tons, right? A massive big block. That's the cornerstone. And that's got to be perfectly square or rectangular, you know, perfectly um, 90 degree angles. And then the next two stones you put either side of that to form the corner where the cornerstone is are called the, 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 the cornerstones or like called the, the flagstones, right? The... Um, the, the stones that go right next to that. And, and they are the ones that form the corner. And from that, you get your two straight lines. So it says that Jesus is the cornerstone, and then the apostles and the prophets are the foundation stones. Ephesians 2.20, um, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. The foundation, the beginning. So they're the ones who start the ministry, and then it gets built on by other gifts, by other people, and by other generations. So the original prophets who gave the word of God to the church before there was a written Bible, the original apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, had the authority to write scripture, they're the start of it all, connected with Jesus firsthand. And then all the other gifts and ministries build on that. But there is still apostolic gifting. There are still those who God especially gifts with the capacity to start new works, to break new ground, to go to places and people to do brand new things. They are the Christian entrepreneurs. They are the ground breakers. They are the ones who just go and do something that's never been done. Maybe you have that gift. Maybe you're, you're outside the box. Maybe you're a break new ground kind of person. Uh, we still need people to go do new works in new places in new ways. That's apostolic gifting. But you can't say you're an apostle like the first century apostles. All right, teaching. Teaching. Teachers uh, help Christians grow up to maturity by helping them apply and understand God's work. I'm doing it now. God's word. I'm doing it now. Teachers help build up the church through sharing information. We see teachers in the, in the New Testament like Barnabas, Paul, Apollos, Timothy, Priscilla, and Aquila. We see sometimes the teaching is large groups, sometimes small groups, sometimes one-to-one. -one. Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos. Personal uh, tutoring relationship, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, teaching is placed third after apostles and prophets. First apostles, then prophets, then teachers. In Ephesians 4, it's placed fourth. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers. Now that order is both chronological and logical. Like, think it through with me. It's chronological. First, the apostles go and start something new. They're sent by God. Then the prophets come and they help share the word of God um, they, that gets recorded into scripture. The evangelists then come and they help new people follow Jesus. The apostles start something new. The apostles, the prophets speak the word of God. The evangelists recruit people to the cause. And then the teacher can come and teach the people. But teaching doesn't come first because otherwise there's nothing and no one. Teaching fits down the line. Once the other um, ministers have done their their ministry. So it's logical. 
it's, it's chronological and it's also logical. Otherwise, there's no one to teach and nothing to teach. Does that make sense? Because before, um, bef- before the Bible was written, you either got your word of God from the apostle that was traveling or writing or the local prophet. But once the, uh, the written word of God, the scriptures came, the New Testament, then a teacher can explain what Paul is trying to say, what Jesus means by this, how that fits in the book of Acts between chapter 2 and chapter 8, etc. So that's part of the role of teaching. Now, teaching is a bit like feeding people. Like, you know, Dave as a senior pastor is kind of the chef of the family. It's his job to serve up delicious, nutritious food week in, week out so that you're healthy. It's his job to serve up delicious, nutritious sermons, small group material, etc. That is healthy. It's going to help you grow. And the way you get healthy is not by eating one healthy meal, but by eating healthy meals one after the next, after the next, after the next. Right? It's long-term. It's cumulative. You might only remember one or two meals in your life. Like I remember being at Nooseville in 2003 and having this lamb warm salad with like roasted capsicums and this balsamic drizzle. I can tell you all about it, even though it was like 20-something years ago. I can't tell you what I ate three weeks ago for dinner. Sermons are the same. Teaching is the same. You might remember one or two kind of key messages that God really used in your life. Um, But the important thing is that teachers teach healthy, uh, the full counsel of God in a systematic way to make sure that people know everything they need to know to love and serve uh, God well. It's cumulative over time, helping them become healthier and healthier day in, day out. Now, part of what this means is because teaching is cumulative, if you've been around for a while, you probably won't hear too many new things. You know, if you came to me and said, Mark, I didn't hear anything new, I didn't learn anything in your sermon, I would say, that's fine. You've been in the church for 60 years. You should know this by now. This shouldn't be new information to you. So you learn less new things, but you have a lot more to apply. So the burden for you is not discovery, it's application. I didn't learn anything new from your sermon. That's fine. You know heaps. How are you going with applying what you already know to your life? Otherwise, you end up being an under-exercised and overweight sheep, which is not healthy. Right, So you have to apply what you know. That's the key thing. Okay, uh, helps, helping. Helping literally means, here, let me do that for you. It's about taking the place of somebody. It's a service gift, not a spoken gift. Uh, helping is helping in a practical way to free up other people so that they can meet the needs of others. It's stepping in, Right? So the way it works in the church is you see, um, instead of um, you know, preaching, Pastor Dave is, I don't know, making coffee. And you think, Dave, let me do that for you so you can go and do this instead. Let me help you so that I can release you to operate in your shape o space. That's what helping is. It's a gift. I think it's only mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, here, let me help you. Let me step in. It's a brilliant gift in the church. If you've got this gift, use it. Use it, use it, use it. Push in. Say, here, let me do that for you. Let me help. Let me take that off your hands. Let me support you. You go do something else. I'll do that for you. It's a great, great gift. Number 13, administration. The gift no one prays for. 
but it's such a powerful gift. Like the word that's used literally means to steer or to pilot. God gives some people supernatural insight into um, a ministry organization. They are able to see inside the machine of what's working, what's not working. They are able to organize and prioritize God's work to make it efficient and effective. They are the architects of ministry. They are the ones who love spreadsheets and flowcharts and who can see new ways of doing things that are going to be more effective, uh, more fruitful. They're able to organize people and tasks and events to be as effective and efficient as possible. It's a brilliant gift. If you've got the gift of administration, use it. We need you. We need your help to make things clear and straight and organized so that God can be uh, most effective in our church. Uh, Number 14, serving. So serving is a very generic word, a very general term. It just means to be the deacon, to be the servant, to wait tables. It's serving in practical ways. Some people are especially gifted to, to do what is needed, to minister in practical ways, to set up tables, to make coffee, to do finances, to print out flyers, a million different things you can do, organizing rosters, a million things you can do in God's church that just need to be done. And people that have this gift love to use it. Humbly doing what is needed. Uh, 15, encouragement. Encouragement. Encouragement's a misunderstood gift. It literally means to put courage into. I, I think of it like someone's having an epileptic, not an epileptic, but like an anaphylactic shock, right? They've eaten some peanuts. And what you do is you inject them. You get the EpiPen and you ram it down into their leg and you squeeze the trigger and they go <gasps> back to life. And they get up and they say, man, I was dying there. I was withering. I was suffocating. I was choking. And you injected adrenaline into my bloodstream and it brought me back to life, right? That's the picture of encouragement. It is injecting courage into people. It is reminding people of what they already know but have lost sight of. So when someone is discouraged, mopey, when their faith is flailing, when they've lost confidence in God and in themselves, when they're filled with doubt and paranoia and anxiety and paralysis, if you have the gift of encouragement, it's not just coming alongside saying, there, there, it'll be okay. The gift of encouragement is a stern talking to, right? Are you telling me that Jesus isn't powerful anymore because you're acting like it? Have you forgotten that your name is written in the book of life? Have you forgotten that no word from God can ever fail? Huh? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is not powerful anymore? Do you think God has fallen out of love with the world? Do you believe the cross is emptied of its power? Get up, get out of here. Go do God's work. You remind people of what's true. You empower them. You put courage into them. So after someone has encouraged you, you should be like a fighter, you know, like a boxer, just, just ready to step out and, you know, take on the giants because you've been reminded about the power and goodness of God. It is a great gift. If you've got the gift of encouragement, don't hold back. We need you to fire us up and to remind us that God is good and that he's for us and that he's at work and that he wants to use us and the gospel's powerful. Use the gift of encouragement to build up the church, to put courage into. Oh, so good. 
Uh, 16, giving, the other gift no one prays for. Lord, please help me be a good administrator and give away all my money. <laughs> giving, giving is a gift. Um, all of us uh, should have the um, discipline of putting God first with our finances and using our resources, our money, our time, our energy, our expertise, not for ourselves, but for God's work. All of us should be faithful and consistent in giving money to God's work, week in, week out, day in, day out. That, that's a no-brainer. What we're talking about here is not should you give an offering, but some people are especially gifted by God to contribute to God's work financially. Doesn't mean they're rich necessarily. It just means that they love giving, they can't help but give. And the way you know you have this gift is you find it easier to give money away than to keep it. You're always looking for things to contribute to. You daydream about what causes you would support if you had more money. That's the gift of giving. You just want to be part of what God is doing. You say, here, let me give. You, you go above and beyond. You're spontaneous when the Spirit leads. You love to give. Some people have a huge capacity to give financially. Uh, some don't. Uh, that's okay. But giving is that sense of um, yeah, wanting to cheerfully give money away to do God's work. Uh, number 17, leading. We're almost there. Uh, leading the word here and used in Romans 8 uh, means to direct, to be set over, to be over, to preside, to rule, to lead, to manage, to superintend. Uh, in 1 Timothy, it's uh, translated direct the affairs. Uh, in Romans, translated as lead. Uh, other places as rule. Uh, it's, it's, it's to lead. Now, what I think this means is that um, pastors should have the gift of leadership. If you're going to be leading God's church, you should be a gifted leader. You should be especially gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to lead with vision and clarity and decisiveness and diligence and humility and grace and faith. You should be gifted, a gifted leader. It also means that leadership, organizational leadership, having a vision and a plan and stepping out and doing more for God, that's not business thinking. That's actually Bible thinking. Leadership is a spiritual gift. Leaders are to be uh, um, directing and leading and superintending and pro providing, presiding, but with humility and with faith and with gentleness and with diligence. So don't think, oh, having a vision statement and having a plan and having goals, that's just the world creeping into the church. No, no. Leadership is a spiritual gift. God gives people the gift of leading uh, others. We should exercise that gift with diligence. What it means is that not all, uh, sorry, all pastors should have some leadership gifting, but not all leaders are pastors, obviously. And I reckon it would make sense that the lead pastor would be the most gifted leader. Humble, teachable, but gifted in that area. We need our best leaders leading like we need our best encouragers encouraging. So leadership is a great gift, should be used in the church. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12 verse 8, you should exercise that gift with eagerness and diligence. It's a great gift. One of the gifts that, that I have and need to continually try and develop. Uh, mercy, 18. I'm nearly there. Mercy is the uh, compassionate action to those in need. Some people are especially gifted to show mercy and kindness and grace to those that are in need. The sick, the discouraged, the um, grieving, 
And if you have the gift of mercy, you're able to provide for people. You're able to show love and compassion. God uses you in a special, powerful way to show the gentleness and love and kindness to people most in need. Like Mother Teresa is a classic example of someone who has that mercy gift. Evangelism. Uh, All of us should be ready to share our faith, but God gifts some people uh, with the gift of evangelism. They find it easy to talk about Jesus, and people come to faith in Christ all the time because they have that gift. I remember being at an event, it's like 15 years ago, I was emceeing this event, like a thousand people in the room, and the, the guy got up to speak who was the evangelist. And, and he gave this very ordinary talk, right? It's like, hey, uh, if you're going this way and God wants you to go that way, repentance is when you turn around and you go in God's way. That means you have to say sorry for your sin, put your faith in Jesus. And I'm like, oh man, this is not going well. This is like one of the worst you know, gospel talks I've ever heard. Like it's true, but there's just you know, kind of no oomph to it. Like it's just so boring. Then he said, anyway, if you want to come down the front and accept Christ, you can. And like 200 people got out of their seats and came down the front. And I'm like, what? But it was just a gift. The Holy Spirit used him in a way that far exceeded what I thought should have been the results. He had an anointing upon him. God used him in a special way, in a big group setting. Sometimes that's big group. Sometimes it's small group. But yeah, certainly um, if you have that gift, you need to foster it, look for opportunities to, see that, to share that gift. One of the ways you know you have this gift, I reckon, like the, the, the pastor, the pastor stands on stage and all he can see is the people in front of him or in front of her, right? He says, oh, there's so-and-so. I wonder how they're going this week. They had a job interview on Tuesday. Oh, that person's mum was in hospital. Like you just see the people in your flock. You know them by name. You love them. You daydream about them. You wanted to see them grow and find Christ. And, you know, the evangelist doesn't see the people in the church. The evangelist sees everyone outside the church. Like they daydream about the people who aren't here, who don't yet know Jesus. And they're captivated by that. And they just long to see people who don't yet know Jesus find Jesus. That's a gift of evangelism. That's that's an evangelistic passion. So all of us should share our faith. All of us should look for opportunities. But God gives some people in a special way to share their faith. Last one, hospitality. And just as the worship team uh, comes back up, hospitality doesn't mean you love entertaining. Come over to my house. I'll make you a delicious pasta. It'll be great. We'll sit outside. We'll put on some music. It'll be a great night. I'll I'll be um, hospitable. I'll show hospitality. Hospitality is the love of strangers. If you've got this gift, you, you just see the stranger. You meet someone for the first time and you're able to show them love and mercy and kindness and compassion to welcome them in. You say, hey, just, just come stay at my house. Like You can sleep in my bed and have my room and I'll just sleep outside and in a tent. You know, That's hospitality. It's the love of strangers, providing people, providing for people. So again, I just want to ask you, Do you know how God has wired you, how He's gifted you? Have you discerned your gifts? Are you developing your gifts and are you using them? Not for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters here. And as you use your gifts, God will use you, work through you to build up, to bless, to strengthen, to encourage, to love, to remind others of His goodness. Each of us have a role to play. Each of us have a role to play. So we're going to worship and then we're going to have a time of prayer. Let me pray.
Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us, you are in us, you are for us, Lord, and how you long to work through us as you lead us and guide us as we hear your voice, Lord, as we step in to greater obedience, as our courage and faithfulness grows, as we respond to your promptings, as we put to death sin and evidence more the fruit of the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit day by day, Lord, you are leading us and you are guiding us. And Lord, I pray that this, this next season for Brackenridge Baptist Church would be a season of incredible fruitfulness, that the church would be built up and strengthened in every way as each one does their part, as each one uses their gifts, as each one responds to how God has uniquely shaped them, as each one steps out to do new things in new ways, Lord, uh, not for our own glory, but for your glory, but for our joy, because of what a joy it is to know you and to love you and to serve you. Amen.